Welcome to the Motorsports in Focus podcast. Today we are shifting focus more toward photography with an interview slash discussion with my friend and fellow photographer, Andrew Maturko, uh, joining us remotely. So first things first, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Hey man, excited to be here. Awesome. Uh, so we'll just talk about your background first and then we'll get into some of our topics. So if you can, just give us a brief introduction of who you are, what your background is, and uh, what you do now. I'm, I'm an automotive photographer, and I am now the marketing manager at a company called Road Scholars in the Raleigh-Durham area, North Carolina. We focus entirely on, on vintage Porsches and super uh, top-tier models, of 550 Spiders, RSKs, kind of early competition history all the way into modern stuff, and do sales restoration, do a little bit of motorsports now with running Pikes Peak, and we're getting a little bit more into the vintage motorsport side of things with uh, you know, supporting cars for events like Ren Sport and the HSR and SCCA, vintage SCCA races. Nice. That's awesome. So how did you get into uh, photography? I got into photography through, uh, through BMX, actually. I, uh, I was big into it back in, in high school, and uh, I'd blown out my knee up at uh, Woodward Camp World Professional you know, X Games dudes would uh, would train, and uh, I had this little uh, this little thirty five millimeter point and shoot camera that my grandma bought me off QVC way back when, and uh, so you know I, when I blew out my knee I couldn't I couldn't ride anymore. So this was uh, my way to stay involved with with kind of the sport that that I loved so much, and uh, I kind of kept pursuing that over the years and getting into better cameras and that. But, um, you know, I started branching out into a little bit of portraiture and, and hanging out with my friends that were musicians and uh, touring around with those guys while shooting all the BMX stuff. And I pretty much shot all the way through college. And uh, by the time I was finished with my degree, I was kind of cooked and uh, put photography on the back burner for somewhere around 10 years. And uh, through a mutual friend and my friends that had Volkswagens, uh, ended up going to a show and pretty much that's that's how I got my start in automotive photography, at least. Gotcha. And so what were you doing in those 10 years that you weren't doing photography? What were you focused on? Working. <laughs> so it, uh, it, all through college, I, I was shooting film and I was shooting a lot of medium format and large format film. And... Uh, you know, you have to buy all of the film, all of the chemicals, all of the paper, all your darkroom supplies, in addition to any camera equipment that you end up breaking, which, you know, I broke quite a few things. So um, it got expensive really quick. And uh, so I kind of, uh, I would like that along with having assignments, like having to shoot six or seven rolls of film per assignment and multiple of those in a semester just kind of burned me out a little bit so uh in the back burner i was focused on just just working the whole time and and kind of making money and uh i started getting into volkswagens and modified volkswagens and uh that kind of led me to a show in montreal canada i had this uh i had this polaroid land camera that i had been kind of dicking around with for a little bit 
and I brought that up with me, and that was that was officially the first really automotive stuff that I had shot uh, was on peel apart Fuji FP100C. Um, it's almost four by five size, little Polaroids, and uh, yeah. So I, a friend of mine was up there who was uh, he was a professional photographer and he had a blog and all this and. He ended up uh, lending me one of his camera bodies and a couple lenses and like, you know, shoot as much as you can, man. Like these, these shots don't cost you anything. So, you know, just go for it. And the only thing I want in return is for you to, you know, put together a blog post about the show and, um, and you know, do a little bit of writing. So that was my official foray, foray into automotive photography. And that's really what got me back into photography after all those years. So after that, you were... You were back into photography. Did you find yourself going to more shows or other events, or what did you get into after that? Yeah, so we, uh, you know, once that that first one was was kind of out of the way, that first show was out of the way. We were we were going to shows all the time. He worked for for Boston at the time, and I uh, lived down in Miami, Florida. And he mentioned the Rolex Twenty Four, so you know, we would sh- we shot some of these modified Volkswagen events, but his his blog also covered a lot of uh, motorsport stuff. So that was my first actual race that I had gone to and kind of my first assignment, if you will, my first assignment that kind of came out of the blue. So uh, we went down there together and shot the 24 and right after that we shot Sebring and uh, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So then from there, obviously that grew and you ended up at Road Scholars, which does all the classic Porsche stuff. Um, and I also know from talking to you that you're definitely into classic Porsches and you have a pretty good knowledge base in classic Porsches. Did that come before or after Road Scholars? Uh, that definitely came during Road Scholars. So, um, piggybacking up off our previous thing in, uh, in those 10 years that I was, that I put photography on the back burner, I started working at dealerships and that, that was my way to be around cars that I couldn't afford. And just kind of learn more and more about them. I worked at a BMW dealership for about nine years. Started out in the wash bay and came all the way up to uh, kind of management, if you will. And uh, I left the BMW dealership and got into a Porsche dealership. And you know, as I, the only thing I really knew at the time was 964s, 993s. Like I didn't really know a ton about them, uh, but I wanted to learn more. So. Uh, once I got to the Porsche, the Porsche dealership, I re- kind of learned how much I didn't know. And uh, I went to a show out in Long Island and shot that. And that's where I met Cam Ingram and uh, our sales manager, Tim Kuhn. And um, that I ended up doing a story for them. For their, They had RS Magazine at the time, Road Scholars Magazine. Um, so once I, once I got into that, I really like I really started digging into the history books and kind of learning more and more about these cars because there's, there's 75 years worth of Porsche history that, you know, there's, there's so much that they did in such a short period of time. Um, you know, there's so many stories to get into. So, uh, yeah, so I mean, my port, my Porsche knowledge really came once I started doing this more for work. Do you think you have a favorite era? of Porsche, classic Porsches, uh, race car or road car? 
stuff because when you so the the things that we work on are such special subsets of special era so uh you know to, to answer your question a very short way no it's a there's a there's a lot of them so the early competition years are amazing because for instance uh we we just brought a couple of cars out to lose and one of the cars we brought there was the the uh, 1952 America Roadster is a Type 540 America Roadster, which is technically Porsche's first competition car. After you know they they had the Gamuns and the, the early early 356s that were really road cars, but Porsche throughout their entire history raced them. So, but that uh, you know that that 52 Type Amer the the uh, Type 540 America Roadster like that's such a an important car for. For Porsche's history, and then you look at just a couple of years later, and they they went ahead and started building 550 Spiders, and kind of there's 15 prototypes, and from there 90 production cars, and all those cars are so different. So there's so many stories within just that short production run. So then, you know, I mean, it, when you look through the entire scope of Porsche history, there's all these incredible stories surrounding the cars. And that you know these giant leaps in engineering, it's really hard to nail down a single area or a single road car. Fair enough. That, you know, it's kind of be a favorite. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a 540. Actually, does it look like a 356? It's a sort of. It's, it's a. When you look at it, it's kind of a weird car because it's it almost back half of it looks very Italian car, and the front half of it distinctly says 356 so uh but that that actually was the predecessor to the speedster and obviously you know the speedster is one of the most important porsche models in the early years that was a uh, for some that were kind of designated competition cars but that was a car that really like kicked off just popularity with privateers that and the 356 coupes uh, and you know i mean like those cars gave way to, to things like the fiberglass era, uh, you know, the 904, 906, 910, uh, 917s, like all those, all those years and all sorts of different body styles for different, you know, for endurance racing, for hill climbs. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's wild to look across Porsche's history and see, see how much they did and the drastic leaps in engineering. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I I definitely lean toward the uh, the fiberglass cars. I just think they look amazing, and I love the colors on them as well that you typically see. Um, and I don't know, there's just something about those cars that I love. Um, but yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so now that you're at Road Scholars, uh, and your title is marketing manager, so I I'm assuming that's like a catch-all for all sorts of media-related things. Um. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty much anything visual and writing, and uh, I could probably say anything that you interface with, uh, you know, Instagram, YouTube, website, all that stuff. Makes sense. Uh, so do you f take a lot of photos there week to week, or is it spread out in terms of all sorts of different work? Almost every day I'm shooting something. So, uh, for instance, yesterday I was shooting shot a 718 RSK and a 910 Carrera, uh, Carrera 10. 
So, you know, I probably have about 2,000 photos that I shot yesterday, not including all the stuff that I was grabbing of restorations in progress and various projects and things that we have going on. So those, the two cards you mentioned, those were for auction sort of, or uh, I guess sales pictures. Yeah. What, so one of them is already sold, um, but yeah, they were inventory, inventory photos. The 910 is going to be put up on a trailer soon. Gotcha. And then uh, it's interesting you mentioned the restoration stuff because I think, uh, you know, a big part of what you do at Road Scholars is showing a lot of behind the scenes stuff of what goes on during a restoration, like of that caliber with these kinds of cars, um, which I think is really important. Do you do that more to show people like on social media or in a story, or do you also do it just to document, you know, what went on during that restoration? Uh, so both, but uh, I think that's one of the things that I do like about social media and you know, what I do as marketing manager is I get to share all of like the talented people that we have here in kind of the moments that you wouldn't normally see. So, you know, the guys sanding and painting and finishing off the car, final assembly, uh, even the guys in the shop working on stuff. There's so many interesting moments that are happening here. And there's so many storylines kind of rolled into this place that, uh, I try to share as much as we can of what we're doing and how we're doing it. And, you know, a lot of what we're doing is really to preserve how these cars were built and how the original craft the craftsmen who built them kind of preserving the, the hammer marks and things like that. And all these little details and replicating the way that they would have done say overspray or brush strokes in certain areas. And I think that's, that's a, something that a lot of, restoration shops aren't necessarily doing right now. So it's nice to show the little things that people probably wouldn't notice otherwise. You know, when we bring these cars to say a Concord event or something like that, then I, I like for people to have kind of had a primer of all the things and all the little details to look for. So when they actually walk up to the car and get to get close to it and see, and they know who did it and how they did it. And you know, they feel part of the process. Yeah, that's awesome. I will also want to say that as a photographer, I appreciate the restorations that look period correct and all the details are correct as well because there's nothing worse than when you see this awesome car and, you know, for example, probably not all, but most of the numbers that you see on old race cars are painted on. You can see the brush strokes, like you said. And when you can see that in a photo and it's like that matte finish, it looks so much better, for example... Uh, than a sticker, you know, the sticker that's like yeah. high gloss and it just, it kind of makes the photo look out of place versus when you see something that's done correctly and looks like it's straight from that period where it was racing originally. So much of that stuff is what kind of tells the stories, you know, like I used to, to stencil them on and paint them on you know, on the side of a track in the, a lot of these guys were kind of privateers. So, you know, it, it's, I love, I love all that stuff and like seeing period photos of, of guys doing that sort of thing. Like there's a photo of, um, 550 prototypes before the Carrera Panamericana. I, I think probably butchered how to say that, but, uh, a race in Mexico and, uh, you can see in the paddock, there's someone literally sitting on the ground or sitting on a tire or something like that. And they're, they're painting with a, this little paintbrush. They're painting in all of the graphics 
around the entire car. And it's the big Bosch spark plug and uh, telefunken radio across the side of the fender. So, you know, I mean, stuff like that. And that's the kind of stuff that we're trying to do as companies to kind of like bring those moments back or share those moments and, uh, you know, kind of keep that spirit into, into the present day. Yeah. It makes you wonder if people will look back, you know, the equivalent amount of time into the future at, you know, the photos that you took and if they'll look at it the same way, you know, just like the march of progress, you know, through time, you always end up looking back something that you don't think will look old one day. It's like when you see pictures of yourself 10 years ago and you go, wow, I never thought I would look old or that like setting would look old, but like, you know, this stuff in the background looks old. You'll see cars and you, that you don't realize are like 10 years old now. And I wonder if people look back at those photos and go, oh, wow, look at these tech techniques they were using or the, the tools they were using and think, oh, wow, it's so different than it is today. And I also wonder, do you think the person taking that photo at uh, the Carrera Panamericana thought like that was a really interesting shot because of all those reasons you listed? Or at the time, was it like relatively mundane, but they just took the shot anyway? And because we're looking at it, you know, from our perspective, do you think that adds all that meaning or was it just cool in the moment? Because I think about that today when I'm taking a picture, like, will this look cool 50 years from now? So to answer your first question, uh, back then, probably both. He was probably, you know, I look at stuff like that because I'm excited to capture it in a different way. So I, I wonder if that was, that photographer was like, it was just such an interesting moment. But um, I think as photographers too, we don't like, we don't necessarily realize that what we're doing might be important for the future because so much of what we do here is, uh, is kind of studying all those old period photos and like, figuring out textures and, and, you know, the tools in the background and, you know, even if the focus isn't necessarily on like that, you know, if the, the focus isn't on the subject, like the person doing something, there's a lot of information that you can get from like the background and like this, like you said, like the setting. And so, you know, I, I, I don't think about that when I'm shooting, but hopefully say 50 years from now, what we're doing, either in motorsports or, or here at Road Scholars, somebody will look back and be able to get whatever information that they need, or at least just get excited about it and want to carry on, you know, kind of that legacy of, of what people were doing at yeah. this time. I, I think, yeah. I mean, logic says that's gonna, it has to happen at some point, although it'll probably happen in a different way where, you know, everybody's taking so many cell phone photos now, but it's like we'll take for granted the amount of data that we have and none of it will be saved. It's sort of like, you know, like incredibly popular things that in 30 years become incredibly valuable because everybody didn't think it was valuable and they kind of just threw it away. I wonder if the same thing will happen with uh, digital photos, basically. They're like, oh, there's a, you know, a million people took a picture of this. We don't need to save it <laughs> kind of mentality, you know? Yeah. I think it's going to be hard, though, because, you know, we're looking at, you know, say the fifties and sixties and seventies, like we're looking at tangible negatives and actual photographs. Whereas I feel like digital stuff is, it's a lot easier to, to kind of throw away, but you never know. I mean, someday there might be somebody out there that's unearthing hard drives and, you know, grabbing all the data they can from our little microchips and 
processors, whatever the hell are in those things, and storing all that data and using it as kind of in, it's a, like a digital archaeology, I guess. Yeah, I also think they're a lot easier to lose too, though. Like, you know, if something, I mean, even just finding photos on a hard drive if they haven't been uh, cataloged efficiently, like that's an absolute nightmare. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, but it, also, have you guys ever used old photos? Like, obviously, you use old photos for restorations. Have you ever tried to? use them to scale the graphics on the car and stuff. And I asked that because uh, I did that one time and I thought it was really interesting on, uh, it was a Porsche 908 and we had an old photo from the Nürburgring and we matched it up uh, with uh, like, we went outside, I went up on a ladder and we matched the angle exactly because we were trying to determine the, a couple details on the car. Have you ever done anything like that? Not as intense as that as, as recreating the photo, but we do that all the time. Like whenever we whenever we find a, an image of, say, we're painting on a livery, um, we definitely use kind of the relative scale of, say, the gumball and the number and the font and uh, and all that stuff. Kind of uh, the same way that you would take a scale for a map. It's basically how we do it on the on the cars and figuring out kind of relative where the body lines are, door jams, that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's hard to do that too, though, because I I just really enjoyed it because it was really fun to try to recreate this exact angle of this car. You know, what would that have been like sixty years ago? Um, and try to match it up exactly. And then, uh, but yeah, you're literally doing an investigation and using photography as a tool to see like where was that sticker? How come it shows up in practice but it wasn't in the race? You know, all that kind of stuff. Even in like modern photography, though, I think uh, like you know, modern motorsport photographs and stuff. I that's one of my favorite things is look at other people's stuff and try to deconstruct how they did it, where they did it. You know, like wandering around a track like Sebring and kind of uh, trying to figure out how everyone got their photos because sometimes everything gets really abstract. So, I mean, for me, that's that's one of the best things about photography and. I imagine we're doing it we're doing now what they did way back when too of trying to trying to recreate and figure out how somebody else did the photo so yeah except now we can do it basically in real time with social media versus having to wait till next year <laughs> yeah, for sure but yeah no i do that all the time too and it's almost like a challenge you know when you see a really great shot but then you're also in a weird position where you don't want to go out and copy that same shot but you know, it's like the classic quote about art, right? Like, it's all theft. You're all, you all get inspired by everybody else's work. And you might not copy that shot exactly, but you say, you know, that's a really interesting idea. But I wonder if I took that idea and implemented it in a different way somewhere else. And you get a completely different shot. Yeah. Have you ever gone back and looked through all of, like, uh, the, the early F1 photos and, like, kind of, I mean, personally, that's where I get a lot of inspiration from, like that, like street photography and the way that they use light and shadow and all that stuff. But how, how early? You know, like, like way back 70s, or like 60s? 80s. Okay, yeah. That's, yeah, when, so... that's when a lot of like these crazy whip pans and all that sort of stuff started emerging. Yeah, every time They're I've seen those. Super underexposed. Yeah, I always wonder like how much film they went through and what their hit rate was. Because <laughs> <laughs> now you just you can just spray 
and the only downside is you have to look through it later, which does suck. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's better than just not knowing. <laughs> yeah, sir. I mean, you have, you have to know too how that film stock is going to react. Like a slide film, you have to be pretty dead on with your exposure, and that's a lot of what those guys were using back then. So. Yeah, I think they also yeah. used a lot of filters, which. Yeah. No, I don't really know of many. I've never heard of people using filters today. Um, and like weird filters, like I saw a photo one time, it was of a Porsche 935 and I was just like cataloging photos and I saw, I came across this and I was like, I had no idea how they got this shot, but the car was in focus. Half of it was, and then half of it was blurred like a panning shot. And like the in focus part was this like, uh, flame belching out the exhaust. And I was like, that's a really cool shot. But I was like, I cannot figure out how they did it. <laughs> And, uh, I just thought about it and thought about it. I asked a couple people. They're like, yeah, I don't understand that. It doesn't make any sense. And then uh, I think eventually we posted it on social media and asked the audience, just like, does anybody know how they got the shot? It's an interesting effect. And it turns out it was a filter that was really popular at the time (laughs) that like blurred half the, uh, frame, which like, I can't imagine trying to use something like that, you know, today. about like there's a lot of people now using these crystal prisms and all that stuff and it's kind of started to pop up in motorsport a little but i think the first time i saw it was uh nate hassler's photos nurburgring is using uh using these prisms to create some like little reflections or crazy flares and all that and i actually think it's sebring recently um forget his name dw burnett uh Okay. Uh, puppy knuckles on on Instagram. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, he, had, he had done the same thing. He got some really cool, like multiple multiple uh, images within a single. So it almost uh, almost kind of looks like double exposure sometimes. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. I yeah. Think... Other than that, I don't. I don't think there's a lot of people using crazy filters in modern modern times. Like back then, they were using blue filters, yellow filters, like stuff to from the technical side to, to kind of create or, or to create contrast or to, uh, you know, balance color and all that, depending on the film stock. And now it's so easy to just push around a bunch of sliders in Lightroom. Yeah. Yeah. I was, yeah especially when Lightroom has tools where I, you know, I don't want to, I, let's say there's strange tools in my opinion, uh, where you can just like change out the sky, which is like ridiculous, I think. Um, but I've actually seen a lot of people using it or like the gradient filters, for example, which I think is like, on one hand, I understand. But on the other hand, I'm just like, that's like, you're, you're getting into like Photoshop territory with that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, but I mean, that's, that's something that was done in dark rooms way back when too. Yeah. And there was there was composite photography going back to as long as there was a darker. Yeah. Where do you stand on the idea of like adding things in like that to a photo versus because like there's no rules when it comes to photography, right? And the more experimental you get, I think the better. But at what point do you say, okay, that's too far? We've like totally just like if you saw the original it doesn't even resemble the final product do you think that matters at all or is that just like you know do whatever uh well in my own photography at least i try to keep it all as enhancements so dropping in the sky is not a 
a huge sin because think about how many times you'd be out there shooting and either this guy's just totally blown and there's no information or you know or it's just flat and overcast and you know if you if you drop in a sky or something it's not all that bad as long as there aren't reflections all over the car kind of pointing out your lie mm. uh i i almost never do it i do a lot with uh with gradient filters and and that sort of stuff like masking the same way that i would treat dodging and burning in the dark room back in, in college and stuff you know like lots of times your subject if you're shooting backlit your subject's going to be one or two stops below the rest of your scene so kind of evening that out bringing those two back into a like a one-stop difference that's a lot of what i'll do and then my, my post-production even in the dark room back then and just kind of darkening a little bit of a foreground sometimes if i'm doing a, a really low angle shot I mean, I'm more of a purist a lot of, in a lot of ways in my photography, I think. Yeah. Trying to not manipulate way too, way too much. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I've always, I don't know, I just, once you start adding things in, then you get to the point where you have to do less and less with the original shot. And it's like, you know, you could add in crazy stuff to any photo to make it better. And I've seen it a lot, mostly with gradients. Um if you look at a lot of aviation photography, you'll see that people really use heavy gradients, um, which is fine, you know. But I always thought it was kind of interesting because I was like, I don't know, like I, it's a cool effect, but like, you know, that's not that wasn't the sky that day, and I don't know why it bothers me a little bit. Um, but I understand it makes the shot more interesting. I just think that I'd rather try to push myself to find an interesting way to display that subject instead of just dumping something like that in because i think if you get too used to doing that you know you're going to end up doing that for everything and you're going to miss opportunities that were right there the whole time but it's sort of like that old uh argument for like traction control and stuff where it's like oh you know these modern cars have traction control they're really easy to drive and so you could drive in a way that ordinarily, you know, you'd end up sliding off the road, but now, you know, because you have the traction control, you're good to go. And I wonder if it sort of gives you that same feeling of like, oh, no, we're good with this photo. I'll just throw this on and it'll look great. Um, do you think that's, do you think that matters at all, or is that kind of whatever? Um, I don't think it's a terrible thing, uh, just as long as you're not using it as a crutch. So uh, if you're, if you use it as an enhancement or, makes sense in the end product it's fine but uh i think as a general rule of thumb it's always good to aim to get everything right or as much as you can right in camera and uh not really rely on post-production a shitty a shitty photo is just there's no saving it yeah that's fair i think a, that's a good perspective also is that you know it's fine to do whatever to the photo as long as it's done in a way that isn't overdone you know, like you could put a gradient on something and it just looks really good. But if you overdo it, you know, and there's like an outline around the subject because, you know, the gradient's like trying to mask over it, um, then obviously that's like too far. So I think that's a really good way to look at it. So in your photography, now that we're, now that we're getting rolling on, on photography talk, what are some of your favorite photos that you've shot? <sighs> that's a really good question. Um, and it's funny cause, uh, I remember you, you sort of brought this up and you mentioned it to me and 
uh, I was thinking about it for a while, and I really, I never look back at like my photos and think that like they're favorites. And I I don't know if that's just because they're on like a digital medium where, like, I'm the kind of person where I need like stuff in front of me that's like tangible for it to feel like real. Um, and I don't think I post enough to social media to really look at that stuff all the time and feel like, wow, I really like that. That's awesome. But I would say my favorite photos are ones <laughs> that uh, are typically not the best ones, but that tell the most story. For Actually, for a while, my favorite photo was a photo I took at the St. Pete Grand Prix, and it was a Honda Civic that was three-wheeling through the first corner with a taped-on front bumper. And it was in the... I don't think they have the category anymore, so I don't remember what it was called. But it was basically like a literally a streetcar with a roll cage and some slicks. And I just love the idea of that kind of racing. And the fact that this thing was like, you know, had the battle scars and it was three-wheeling through the first corner. And it's just this humble Honda Civic. I just really loved the story that that told, right? Like, that's just... We go racing with anything, you know? And to see this, you know, it's just a Honda Civic going out there and just, you know, he's, the driver's just wheeling the thing. That That's what I love about racing, the variety and just the idea that, you know, you can race anything. It doesn't have to be some prototype Porsche or something. And that's definitely my favorite kind of racing, so that resonated with me. Um, and then the other stuff that I really like is uh, sort of crazy pans. And just seeing what happens. And there's tons of pans that uh, I really like. But probably if other people saw them, they kind of wouldn't like them. Like I got this pan at uh, Indy. Again, the St. Pete Grand Prix. Where you can see... You know when you do like a pan and it sort of looks... People end up looking like ghosts. Because like you caught... You match the speed for a second. And then, you know, you move the camera or whatever. And you get these like trails following everything. And it's like lightly exposed. Um, so you have these people like along the fence watching and you could still make out where the car is. And, you know, that told a better story, I think, than, you know, some of the other shots I got that were just clean car shots. So crazy pans and, um, stuff that tells a story that resonates with me, I would say. And those two pictures are what came to mind immediately. Do you have any, any photos that, that really like, there's a story behind it that you probably wouldn't gather from like a some a behind the scenes moment like what it took to get that shot um <laughs> yes but like it's hard to tell that story sometimes um with the photo i would say most of those stories are when i've been under uh an insane like time crunch or just logistical thing where like to even get to that spot to take that photo in that amount of time um, you know, like I was, I was just psyched about that and it wasn't necessarily the photo. Um, but in terms of like a position or something, there's nothing really that comes to mind other than uh, a panning shot I took at Sebring, uh, ever since they installed that new bridge there, I like trying to pan the cars, uh, like from underneath basically. And Sometimes whatever banner they have on will really mess with the shot because, I don't know, might have writing on it or something. Um, but this year at the – that was the Classic 12, 
uh, you know, there was no banner on it because it wasn't the 12 hour or the main 12 hour. And so I was able to pan through it pretty good, but I just thought it was a really cool spot and a really cool opportunity. Um, and trying to pan when you can't see the car coming. And so you're basically just reacting immediately and almost like f just rotating your wrists and just hoping for the best. And I got the best shot I've gotten so far. I've tried that shot a couple times, but, uh, yeah, I've never done like a crazy position and I know you have, so I'm interested to hear your stories on this because I'll see some of your shots sometimes and ask like, wait, how, where were you to get that shot? Like one of the ones that comes to mind and you sent this over in the sample, uh, images you sent me to was the 917, uh, 30, I think it was the Sunoco car in California and you were like standing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell me where, where were you standing exactly? That was on the, on the, we were up for Pebble Beach and uh, they do that, they do a tour along the, all of uh, the Big, uh, big Sur, Pacific uh, Coastal Highway. So uh, actually there's a great story behind that because I was here with, uh, I was out there with our videographer, Trey, and we we're trying to find spots and, you know, Big Sur and PCH, anybody who's driven it knows it's absolutely gorgeous. And there's all these amazing sight lines, the road curves and twists and, you know, kind of hugs the entire coast and it's up on these crazy bluffs and cliffs. And uh, so we were up there and we're waiting and I had found it a really a great spot. It had six or seven turns and I was all set up. And before the cars came, there was this ridiculous like fog that rolled in pea soup you, like you can't see three inches in front of your face let alone down the road and uh so i was kind of waiting it out and maybe 10 minutes elapsed and i started getting really kind of anxious that i was going to miss the shot entirely i was just going to have this fucking car emerging from fog which in hindsight might have been cool but uh so i yelled over to trey who was like two turns down i'm like I'm going to hike up the road away and like, just come back and find me. And I ended up probably walking three or four miles and basically in the roadway, in the fog where people can't see you. So you're, you're up against the guardrail and there were sections when there, there were cars coming that I had to tiptoe and hold on to the edge of the guardrail. So I didn't fall off these fucking bluffs into the water below. And, uh, so I did that for however many miles and I finally found this, this little, clearing right before the uh there's a famous bridge out there bixby bridge i guess it is and uh so I, I kept hiking along and there's this little ridge that that sticks up and the road's kind of carved into the middle of it so i hiked up along that and i was on this tiny little triangle where i'm, I'm six and a half feet tall and i've got size 13 feet i had to put my feet one in front of the other and it was just enough space for me to kind of balance and to the left of me there was a maybe a 120 foot drop onto the beach and then to the right there was the road so if i lost my balance or got knocked over by the wind i, I would have been fucked out of the way um but yeah so the 917 had had been cruising this rob kaufman's car had been cruising behind these uh the mercedes 300 sls that the mercedes museum brought and uh that car, the 917, does not like to go slow. So he had he had a, a whole probably 10 car lengths behind those guys 
that he, he kept away so that he could kind of accelerate and then let off and accelerate and let off. So uh, that one I had captured in one of those moments in between where, uh, you know, the, the Mercedes had passed and the cars behind had still had a, a good a good distance before they were in the frame and uh, snapped a handful of shots. And I was lucky enough to get the, the 904 that, that we were showing in the same area before that fog rolled back in. Cause it was really like, it was still, it was still coming up and over the road and, and blocking pretty much everything. And, uh, you know, those cars just had two moments where the fog let up and got the photo and hiked back down and hiked another two or three miles down the road to get another shot when they were returning. Yeah. that That's wild. I don't think I ever would have done that. <laughs> and I remember you telling me that story at the time. Uh, and I was just like, Jesus, <laughs> everybody thought it was a drone shot. Yeah. It kind of, I can see why they would think that it's almost looks like you're just hovering. It's almost like, uh, like when you see the camera rig shots where, you know, they have the rig attached to the car and they get the rolling shot and then just like Photoshop out the arms and the mounts and stuff. It kind of almost makes you think you were holding on to something and just stuck the camera out there. But <laughs> yeah. Definitely had nothing to hold on to. If I would have lost my balance, I would have been thoroughly fucked. Yeah, no, it was a great shot. Uh, I'm not sure if I would have taken the risk. And I and it's funny because uh, I really have no stories like that that I can share anything like that. But um, <laughs> I mean, it was I hope great... it's a good thing or a bad thing that I have a ton of those stories. <laughs> I mean, just every every Pike Speak photo that I've done, there's there's a little bit of a, a harrowing story behind it, or you know, I. I for people who haven't been on Pike's Peak, they don't necessarily understand. You know, it's it's sixty five percent mountaineering and thirty percent photography, and you know the rest is just luck. But um, you know, you you can't drive. You get to a, a spot and you park, and that's where you're parked for the rest of the day. You know, the rest of the hours in uh, in testing. So anywhere else that you want to go on the course in uh, the section. Basically, you have to hike it. You have to throw your shit on your back, and you know, in the top section, you're you're starting out at, I think it's twelve and a half thousand feet. Forget what Devil's Playground is, but you know, you're already at pretty significant altitude, and it's really rocky. It's it's not an easy hike by any means. So, I've I've kind of uh, over the years, I've forced myself to become a really good hiker, and. Uh, you're lucky if you get five shots, you know, five runs rather. So you have the opportunity for 10 shots. So I always try to come away with three or four different vantage points from one single, uh, or four different shots from one single vantage point as they're coming, as they're going different telephoto lengths and that, and then, uh, you know, a wide panning shot or something along those lines. But, uh, lots of times I will be pretty much bouldering and trying to climb up the side of to the side of a hill, like, you know, with a, a, two 1DXs, my camera bag on my back with water and some snacks and all my lenses and stuff. And, uh, you know, 1DX with the 400 on a, a monopod and then my other camera swinging around and usually I have another body in there just in case. So there's times where, you know, I'll park and cover three or four miles and then get almost to the top of the mountain you know, in between runs. Yeah, that's 
that's wild. That you've got some incredible shots from Pikes Peak, and it, but it also seems like a very difficult event to cover for that reason, because you get such limited opportunities to even get those shots, and on top of that, you have to hike everywhere up the mountain, and also because of the altitude, you know, you've got less oxygen. Does that affect you when you're shooting? <laughs> Sometimes. I mean, I'm surprisingly good at altitude. Um, which is kind of crazy because I'm so out of shape these days, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely, it wears you down. Like there, I remember the first year I got out of the car and I looked up the side of the mountain and I was like, all right, cool. Like the, uh, the shot that you posted in the stories, which basically it's, uh, two back to back, almost 180 right handers. Uh, I had gotten out of the car that morning and everything happens in the dark, uh, basically. So like, you get up on the mountain and if you're in the top section, you know, it's probably 4.30 in the morning, 5 o'clock. Uh, once you actually get to your parking spot and get out and start to get set up for your photos. So everything's in the dark anyway. And uh, it was my first time there and I was just like, all right, I got to figure out, you know, more or less what I want to shoot. So I'm like, I'm going to hike up the side of the mountain a little bit. And I kept going up and up and up. And by the time I had finished... I was pretty much at the last turn before the summit. Uh, so I hiked probably about an hour. I, I mean, using the term hiked loosely, it was, uh, that was bouldering. That was, you're literally climbing almost vertical rocks with all this shit on your back. And I had way overpacked. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was the first time the altitude really kind of hit me because after a while your, your feet feel like they're 150 pounds, you know, you're gasping for breath and you kind of like dizzy because there's no, there's no oxygen. It's, it's a ton of effort just to keep your balance on these rocks, even more so in the dark before the sun comes up. So yeah, it's, I, but it, for me, like half of the, half of the joy of Pike's Peak is the, the physical challenge. And like, you know, you had to earn that shot. It's not like, it's not like you walked to a different corner at a, at a racetrack and, you know, you have to walk a mile or two shooting at a racetrack is hard enough, but you know, you, you earn every shot that you get. And when it comes out and it's a killer fucking shot, then, you know, it's really something to be proud of. Yeah. And it makes it all worth it. I think that's what makes photography fun in the first place and adding difficulty on top of that. Like you said, like you were asking, you know, the shots that I thought had a lot of meaning or told a story behind them. Like, you know, one of your Pikes Peak shots, there's a story in the photo itself, and then there's the story of how you got there and, you know, everything you just told me there. So it's like, yeah, it's, it has like double the meaning for you. You know, it's like if your photos could have proper captions, you know, that's what you would include in the caption, and it would make it much more interesting. Because I think, you know, especially now, like everybody just browsing, you know, scrolling through social media, you see great photos all the time. And especially since big companies, you know, you see like great marketing campaigns with great photography and it's like we all expect great photos, but we have, I'd say the average person, you know, just doesn't understand what people go through to get those photos. And it's really interesting to hear the stories behind them. And it's amazing how hard photographers work at events like that just to get out, you know, what is expected of them, basically, like you know, you have this expectation. We, we expect to see these kinds of photos from you. And it's like, Oh, by the way, you got to hike up a mountain, you get five chances <laughs> and that's <Yeah>. it. <laughs> get it done. <laughs> and then, you know, 
there, there's so many variables up on that mountain. But I mean, I think I think there's so many more stories like that out there, and in, in like especially automotive photography. But you know, it's the Nat Geo guys and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, um, but even just think about endurance racing, like the guys who shoot the the 12 hour races and the 24 hour races professionally, like you're expected to turn and burn while you're out there and you're hiking three, four miles on the track. You're running around from corner to corner and you have to see things through a creative eye. You know, it's so much harder than, than people who aren't involved in this, this world would really understand. I think, I think too, when you get to see really amazing photos come out of circumstances like that, like, you know, the Nurburgring 24 kind of photos and stuff from Daytona when people are, are seeing things in a really new, creative way, you know, they're just grueling as it is. And there's usually, for those guys, for the professionals, there's a week prior to that of, of testing, of shooting the promotional photos. So, you know, you're already probably completely gassed before the race ever even starts. Yeah. And you've got to hit your checklist. So, you know. I'd imagine if you ask enough photographers questions about like exactly that, like, you know, what, what's the story behind some of your photos? You know, they'll tell you about sleeping on the floor under the desk in the, in the media center or, you know, whatever, whatever kind of stuff that you have to really put in, to get those shots. Yeah. I, I'd love to tell those kind of stories and really highlight that effort with the sort of the venture I'm working on now, because I just think that, uh, you know, nobody really gets to see that pers- that side of photography, you know, that perspective of, like, what goes into it. And I think it's mostly because of the way we consume media now. You know, it's just like you just browse through. You go, oh, that's a cool shot. Oh, that's a cool shot. And you move on to the next one where, you know, I think we used to have more time to really look at a story and um, just take it in. Like, personally, I got into photography more seriously after I saw all the posts on speed hunters and I had a big influence on both my photography and just like, or I guess my photography in general and automotive photography. And I used to love those articles where they would talk about what went into the weekend of shooting leading up to it after it, you know, all that kind of stuff. I always enjoyed that. And now, you know, we just consume quick little bites on social media and that's it. Some guys are starting to do it a little bit more on YouTube, which is kind of cool. But me personally, I have a hard time sitting there watching a video for, for too, too long. But uh, it's cool to hear like all those stories behind it. And um, you know, a lot of photography is it's not a profession you necessarily do because you're going to make a shit ton of money off it. But it's it's something that you're you're working on something that means more to you, and it's you're sharing your your viewpoint with the world that nobody else can, you know, like from a first person perspective that, that other people can't really see. So. Yeah. I think I don't know. any creative endeavor, I think, you know, you end up doing that. And I think there's a really a breadth of creative endeavors that people wouldn't think are creative. Like, you know, engineering is a creative endeavor to some extent, you know, you're coming up with something, you're finding a solution to something and you know, that solution doesn't exist until you think of it. But with photography, I think what makes it fun is that challenge of trying to find something that doesn't exist and you need, you know, to just go out there and 
put the effort in to find it. But there's also different types of photography, you know. There's some people who go out there and they just get the shots that are required, like they're just doing a job, which I totally respect because that's hard enough as it is. But like you said, to then be creative on top of that is like an added layer. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I, I just think that, uh, yeah, that story often goes untold in general. But I don't know. I kind of think that we'll see kind of like a social media burnout eventually and maybe people will go back to longer format type media um i I think a lot of people are are kind of burned out on social media as it is i think that's part of why we're seeing such a resurgence of uh analog photography and and print media yeah like the quarterly magazines and stuff i thought that was really interesting most of most of what i remember of into photography way back when it was all print and you'd sit there and like stare at the photo and you'd like try to figure out how the lighting was and uh you know, bmx stuff had gotten me into to stroked stroked photography and long exposures and kind of mixing those up i mean motorsport photography has a lot of that too and i have you know my day-to-day life i'm looking through books trying to find the old period photos of these cars and uh it's interesting to see how much photography changed and like the styles from say the fifties into the seventies and then to the nineties and two thousands. And, uh, there's a lot of guys for like the endurance races that were using flash photography, but it's just cool to, it's really cool to see all that stuff on paper and you can kind of, you spend more time looking at it and studying it. And it, it literally like feels different. Social media is, it's like disposable, you know, it's this tiny little picture. You don't engage with it the same way. I, I never really find myself holding the phone close to my face and trying to zoom in and figure out a little detail, but I definitely have done that with old magazines and books and you break out the magnifying glass and you're, you're trying to see like little tiny details. I think it would be nice if there's a huge push to, to bring all that stuff back. I agree. And I think it's, it's an interesting point you make because I think that's exactly, it's an illustration of how social media devalues that kind of content because it's so prolific. And especially, I would argue that, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. It's like with, it's in the social media company's interest to push everybody's content, especially like people who are just taking pictures with their phone, right? Because that, if you exclude those people or you shun them away, you know, your platform is basically like, oh, you know, only we only want to see like high quality photos here. You know, that's a huge audience that you're just kind of pushing away. So I understand why they cater more to like just cell phone shots or like cell phone videos, but it devalues someone who took a lot of time to take a picture. And then when they present it on there, it's kind of like, oh, well, I've seen this a thousand times. It's like, yeah, but you haven't seen it like this. And it's impossible to really show somebody the detail on that platform. And I I really hope that maybe with like a resurgence in like these quarterly magazines and other print formats, we see almost like that kind of photography go upscale. And I've used this example before in uh, other conversations, but back in the day, you know, uh, before Rolexes became like really high end luxury items, like they were always nice, but they weren't, you know, ten thousand dollars like they are now 
You know, it wasn't until quartz watches came in and destroyed the mechanical watch market that you saw Rolex go upscale. And, you know, then it was like all the Timex and quartz watches that were super cheap, but did the job better. You know, I wonder if the same thing will happen to creative things as, you know, social media takes over and all this stuff. So it's like you still have the print media. It's just gone upscale and it's even higher quality. So it's like it's almost a good thing because you can get really creative. But the bad side is that it's not as readily available or accessible. Do you think that kind of thing will happen or does that kind of, I don't know, does it? I think it's already kind of. I think it's already happening. So just to use uh, Porsche magazines as a, as example, there's a magazine called Triple Zero, which is a quarterly magazine, but it's it's more of a book than a magazine. And sometimes there's 20, 30 pages on a single single feature. It dives so deep into the history, and it's all amazing artistic photography. So I think, and I, you know, it's not cheap by any means. And I think whether you, if you were to put that in front of anyone else, even if they were outside of the Porsche or the collector car market, something that people would, would pay a premium for because it doesn't, it's not a, it's not a flimsy 50 page magazine that, that starts coming apart after three or four days. Like it, it looks and feed, feels and reads like a book. And I think really that kind of resurgence with like uh, magazines like Magneto and the road rat and stuff like that. So. I hope it kind of expands everywhere. Yeah. I, I find myself that I have a desire for higher quality content in general, just because like social media, I, mean, I know I'm using that kind of like a buzz term, but just in general, social media, and then, you know, that's also like YouTube videos and all that kind of stuff where you're just bombarded with this content all the time. And, again, it's devalued that content to some extent, especially because everything's like clickbait. It's not focused on like quality necessarily. It's just there to get your attention. And so I've found myself like craving, I just like, I just want some quality content. You know, it's like uh, even trying to find like a high quality blog site now is kind of hard to do. And that's kind of what I'm hoping to do with my website is like use it as a platform to like, let's just make really great stories that are, that are illustrated and focus on content and, you know, whatever when it comes to, you know, well, I guess traffic matters, but, you know, that's not the main goal. The main goal is just to build an awesome story and awesome content that's sort of evergreen and you can look at it anytime and it's like inspiring and not just like something that's just like, all right, let's get a bunch of attention and then it's dead two days later. Oh, argue on the, the plus side though of all social media and how how much is out there it really has helped visibility to a lot of really really talented photographers and creative types and you know i think the quality is there it's just how how much you have to sift through and the way that you engage with it uh, so i think something that's kind of like more community friendly and like you know almost like you said, like a social media of sorts or something along those lines that, that focuses on higher end and higher quality. Um, I think I think also that a lot of people don't see their stuff necessarily as being high quality until it's out there, it's kind of out there and all of a sudden it blows up, you know? That's true. Yeah, perspective is everything when it comes to that. And 
yeah, it's like, especially now, you know, <laughs> like if you want to try to get content out there, you know, you have to battle the algorithms and all that stuff. And I think, yeah. you know, it's not really uh, merit-based, let's say. It's like you got to kind of game the system a little bit. You can't just mm -hmm. produce like high quality content. And it's like, oh, it'll get popular. I mean, that's true to some extent. Um, but you really do have to game the system and sort of play by their kind of rules, uh, which is why I got, like it. <laughs> this will be a funny conversation. Did you ever have a, a Tumblr account? <laughs> no. Oh, really? Okay. Well, maybe there's not too much to talk about. But I used to love going on Tumblr because it was just photography. And, you know, I'll admit that there was like, I don't know how they monetized it before because there were no ads or anything. Um, which will be funny to tell our kids one day, like we used to have social media without ads. They'll be like, what? Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I used to love going on there and I would just get inspired and see all these great photos and it was just sort of people sharing, you know, cool content, um, which I thought Instagram would turn into, but now it's just like just this huge marketing machine, but you brought okay. up a really, oh, go ahead was like way back when you know instagram started out as the little square format fun way to share pictures yeah and, and then it became everything else but um i said it to your point with tumblr i used to use Flickr for the same reason because you could kind of use it was similar to instagram in a different format so i i in college i had gotten into Flickr because of uh it was just like an image hosting site i thought that you could make galleries and albums and that sort of shit so i would put my projects together on there then i found out very quickly that there is a community behind it and you could tag different cameras how you shot it all like kind of the metadata and all that uh not metadata but you know like the uh exif info and that so uh you know you used to type in like mamiya rb67 and that kodachrome and all that sort of stuff so you had kind of like the details of how you made the photo and what your equipment was and then you could have a little description and people comment and find it and all that stuff. So I still, I actually, I, I reference Flickr a lot for like personal stuff for all like the film, little film projects, or if I'm looking at, for an interesting lens, like vintage lenses, kind of how they render things. Hmm. Um, I mean, believe it or not too, something I never thought I would use that people would make fun of me for is uh, Pinterest. I thought it was like, like home decor shit for pics and everything. I like, I didn't know what the fuck it was for, but, but there is a ton of vintage motorsports stuff out there. Really? So, turned out to be a really good resource. So to use one of our, our current projects, you painted on the, the 1959 Daytona winning livery on one of the four works RSKs. Uh, once it was in privateer hands, uh, Anton Bondori, who was a, a Hungarian count, and uh, he fled and ended up in Argentina and became their, their Porsche distributor. He was also a privateer racer and he was pretty talented. So him and Robert Mieres had raced the car on their second outing at the first ever 1959 Daytona 1000 kilometer race, which later would turn into the 24 hour race. Yeah. So anyway, um, story short, it was going through all these different resources, trying to find photos because there's almost none out there, ended up on Pinterest and finding one single photo. And then that led me to a photographer's name, which I researched pretty heavily and ended up finding an entire cache of images from that race from, uh, 
the Henry Ford Museum. That's amazing. Pinterest is not just yeah. Pinterest is not for whatever the fuck I thought it was. It, <laughs> it turns out to be pretty damn helpful. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I I tried going on there a few times, and I was surprised by how much content was on there. Um, because once Tumblr sort of started to die, I was like, okay, there's got to be something else, you know. Especially if I'm not gonna like be able to use Instagram the same way. And I tried it for a little bit, but it was just it was definitely different. But I was surprised how much content was there, and like, like you said, like high quality content like that. Yeah, I mean, it's just stuff that people think is interesting, I guess, and they put it up. And, you know, there's a link sometimes that you can follow, so it it becomes a really good kind of archival resource. Yeah, that's awesome. The, the, just the amount of like vintage photography that was on there was absolutely incredible. Do you wonder where those guys yeah. get those photos? Uh, well, I mean, so you, you and I both know like Revs Institute and places like that end up with a lot of really significant collections of, of these images. And I think that's where a lot of them kind of originate, but. Hmm. Yeah. I've seen, I've always just seen so many of them, like I said, back Tumblr and just in general on the internet. And I always think like somebody scanned that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it was this person or their friend or somebody, but somebody scanned that onto the internet. So it's amazing that all those photos eventually ended up on there. Think about like the heyday of forums too. You know, like yes. people used to just upload, there used to be entire threads of four or 500 pages of just like, what's your favorite 935 shot? And there's like, there's hundreds of photos and like it's some are uh, professional photos, some are grabbed from magazines, some are people's photos that they took themselves. So, that's true. Well, I, I would imagine that's where a lot of those photos kind of started out as somebody saved it to their desktop and then put it to another site. So it's like, <laughs> you know, it all kind of speaks to like saving things that you care about. And like, sometimes it's, you know, the best thing about photography is it's a, it's a moment that somebody cared enough to, to take a photo of and make a copy of, you know, so that it could exist over the years. So, yeah, I'm guilty of doing that too. I save a lot of pictures either to my phone or my desktop for reference later. Dude, I got a ton. <laughs> even, even for cars that we're not working on, it's just some of the shit is so cool. Yeah, it's amazing though, because like sometimes I can't even explain why I really love a, an image, but like there's something about it that you're just like, man, just it hits you or what? I, I I don't know. It's really interesting because. Like, I'm not classically trained. I couldn't, like, tell you the reasons that, like, you know, what makes a photo good. I don't know. I guess you had some formal or, you know, it was your degree was in photography. So do you look at photos and think, like, okay, yeah, they nailed this rule, that rule, and this rule, and that's what makes it awesome? Or do you sometimes look at photos, too, and you're just like, man, I love that photo, and I don't know why? Both. Yeah, but I don't look. I don't look so much at like rules because I think when you get to one of the things that really burned me out on photography in college was like trying to shoot within the rules. So you know, like everything that they taught you, all the technical things. Eventually, you just get to the point where like, ah, fuck, like I, I missed all of these three things. A lot of the, the best photos that that I've seen are taken. It's like they've they're within the rules inadvertently or they've done everything completely wrong and it's more about like an emotion and a feeling and 
you know, the scene around it and you're kind of a, you kind of get brought in as a, as an outside observer into, you know, somebody's little world at the time. So, but I, I spend a lot of time kind of going back and like trying to study photos and deconstruct them. And that's a lot of where I get my, my inspiration. So, you know, I think I mentioned earlier, like street photography is one because you think about how often we're stuck with really terrible harsh lighting or tons of reflections and stuff like that. So it's, I look at that as a way to kind of creatively use your environment and like, you know, let things fall completely in, into black and just having a silhouette and a little pocket of light or something like that. Or sometimes I'm looking at portraiture and trying to figure out the lighting situation because it'd be like Rembrandt lighting on somebody's face and you can kind of figure out how that can work on the contours and curves of a, a car or, you know, cars are really, really complex subjects to shoot. And then you add in sometimes a challenging environment or like something like a racetrack, which is not necessarily a pretty place. Like how do you make all that interesting and convey your message? And, uh, I think there's a lot of resources that like a lot of just pulling and kind of deconstructing from the photos that make you feel something or see something and make you look like spend time looking at it in a different way, I think translates over to kind of the stuff that we do. Yeah. I, I look at other people's photos all the time to try to get inspiration. Sort of like I mentioned earlier where I might not like try to copy that shot, but I'll say like, Oh, it's really interesting that they used this effect or they highlighted this aspect of something. And it's like, I wonder if I did that in this scenario, what would happen? And that's when I've taken my best photos is when I'll try to like apply that mindset, but it's a lot easier said like right now than it is in the moment when you're, when you're in front of the subject and you're like, okay, how am I going to make this scene interesting? <laughs> Cause like you said, you're limited a lot, especially in motorsports, you know? Um, and even sometimes like when you have credentials, you'll get even more boxed in with your thinking because you're like, well, I have to shoot within the credentialed area, which is actually, when you think about it, even less area than if you were just, you know, anywhere else on the track. Um, and it's not even true because I, you know, think about all the times that we're at races and stuff, and you'll be standing there, and all of a sudden, somebody in a, a vest is right next to you. Like, there's a lot of times where dudes are shooting from the, the spectator areas too. Yeah, exactly. So, and it's for that reason. Sometimes it's a better shot. Exactly. You know, but you can get those blinders on and you think, well, I got to shoot from here. And yeah. then you're looking at the background and you're like, well, I can't do anything about the background, you know, but all, all it takes sometimes is just changing your angle just a little bit and it'll completely change the shot. And, but I've yeah. only been able to do that from looking at other people's photos and then trying to apply the same strategies and stuff. Cause otherwise, you know, you can get trapped sometimes thinking like, well, you know, there's just no shot here because look at the background. It's like that. The light's like this. I'm just going to move on. And it's like, well, you might be looking at the wrong thing, you know, instead of, and I think that's the hardest skill for me that I've tried to learn. And I still am not that good at it is like trying not to focus on the main subject and just try to tell a story or highlight something else other than the main subject. Cause if you just do nothing but take pictures of the main subject in this example, like a, a car, you know, then later you look and you go, hmm, all I have is just a bunch of pictures of the car from different angles, you know? There's, like, yeah, plenty of other seven, things. 7,000 of the same photo. 
Exactly, exactly. And you're trying to differentiate them somehow with different edits and crops and stuff. And you're like, well, they're all kind of the same. But, you know, you know, like recently I've been trying to focus more, trying to capture like the driver in the car, you know, so using way more lens than I need in a certain spot and see if I can get like a reflection of the visor or stuff like that, you know. And it's like, who cares about the background at that point, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to make two points now. But yeah. uh, one of my favorite photos that you shot was really like a, a dead on side shot from, I think it was Daytona this year. And uh, must you must have been punched way, way in. But um, it was a silhouette, the, all the glass backlit of, uh, I think it was one of the prototype cars. But basically, it was just a, it was almost like a, a side profile of the driver and like the edges of the car and all of the shit that was all over the windows that like it was just so dirty and grimy and it's backlit so that you can see all of that, all of that texture. And uh, I think there was, there's like so much emotion and so much of that race kind of encapsulated in that one single photo that uh, that one stands out in my mind as being one of probably my favorite photos that you've shot. Uh, the, the one thing I was going to say too is like, it's very easy to get so emotionally invested in getting one single photo once you're there, staying there, like trying to get, trying to get a shot that you think it's going to work. Yeah. That's like, there's a lot of times where you gotta, you just gotta let it go and open your mind again. So you don't get tunnel vision. Like one yeah. of the best things that being a photographer kind of gives us is being able to see everything in a new way so like removing sometimes removing yourself from the shot that you want and just being an, an observer the overall scene is where you find or just get inspired by something that you, you didn't even see coming so. yeah it's i i agree and i actually when i was there at daytona this year i tried using a strategy that i got um from my fiance and she gave me this advice. So it was like totally unrelated. I think it was something about like anxiety. Like if you're worried about something or you have anxiety, you can just like tell yourself to look at, give yourself some random task and the act of like giving your brain a task, you know, will sort of take your mind off of it and sort of reset you. And so when I was at Daytona, I was like, you know what, let me try this and see what happens. And so what I did was like, I'm going to look at everything that's blue and like, it sounds really stupid, but I was like, all right, I'm not looking at the cars anymore. I'm just like, let's look at things that are blue. And, like, I'm looking at the guardrails, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, you know, I got the flags over there. I should get a flag shot. That'd be kind of cool. And then, you know, I started looking at other things, and I'm like, oh, you know, I should get a shot of the Rolex clock. You know, it's an endurance race. Like, a clock is really symbolic. And, you know, there were several shots that I could get there. And I saw all of a sudden I start taking pictures of all these different things that were right in front of me in these different ways, just because I stopped for a little bit. and was like, let me take my mind off of the stimulus and just try to look at other random things, you know? And that's how I ended up getting that shot too, is I was sitting, you know, trackside and thinking like, okay, I have, like, I'm out of creativity. I'm just like, I feel like I've got nothing left. And I'm like, I'm just gonna try something here, you know? And I didn't even think it'd be that good at the time, you know, looking on the on the LCD, I'm like, eh, I don't know, we'll see. And it wasn't until I got back that I was like, you know what, this is really cool. And I, I didn't. It's almost like I didn't think of it. I was just trying random things. Like creativity is weird in that, like we, 
we talk about creativity is like, oh, you feel creative. I, I'm not sure that I've ever really felt creative. And I've more often than not, I just feel like I'm experimenting. And maybe that's a version of creativity. But do you find that that's the case that you're just like trying random things and then later it makes you feel like creative, but like it wasn't premeditated, you know, you're just, you're just doing random things. I don't, I don't think, I don't think you ever really feel creative, but I think you're the most creative at the time is when your, your brain is kind of shut off. It's like, uh, all of my best ideas come like kind of when I'm, I'm doing something and brains occupied with a bunch of other things, like, you know, exercising or whatever it is, like sometimes traveling and just be sitting there on a plane and all of a sudden you'll get this flood of ideas. So those are the only times I, I kind of, I guess could say feel creative. Do you ever feel like you try too hard in the moment and then later on, you know, you have all these ideas or, you know, the ideas hit you at random times, like you said, when you're on a plane or traveling, but then in the moment when everything's right in front of you, you're just like, uh, I can't think of anything right now. <laughs> Does yeah, that's, that happen? That's like all the time. I, I usually <laughs> feel like that at every race uh, or any, you know, lots of times when you have to shoot stuff, it's just, you get so like locked in. You're so focused on trying to find the shot that you kind of miss a lot of stuff in between. So it's once at the times that I find I do my best work is when I just kind of approach it as completely as open as possible and just be a sort of a, like a passive observer of sorts. Just grab those moments as I go. That's when I get my best stuff. Or you just kind of sit there for a second and relax your eyes, and you know that's when I see like really good long pans. Got a, you know, almost a second long pen. I'll like kind of relax my eyes and, and just let them lazily track a car and see what kind of colors are passing in between. Or, you know, I mean, sometimes that happens with like silhouette shots. And there's a, there's a shot that I sent you from, I think it was Sebring last year. Uh, there's a couple cars that went off. I was just kind of looking through the viewfinder and, uh, I think there was a Mercedes that had gone off and then another car was passing through the fog behind, you know, the, all the dirt behind it. It's like that, that was kind of a shot that I was just hanging out and relaxing and watching the race and, and ended up grabbing it. So. Yeah. I love those shots. And that was a, that was a great one. And those are also the kind of shots that like, all you can really do is put yourself in the position to get it and then hope that it happens. And it's the weird thing that I think photographers do like in that situation where you're like hoping somebody drops a wheel in the dirt <laughs> yeah. For, yeah. The, for the you're, drama. You're sitting there behind the camera talking to people like, come on, come on, yeah. somebody go wide. <laughs> I did that this year after uh, you showed me all those shots. I thought, you know what, I'm going to try that. And I was hanging out at the exit of uh, the S's and literally I'm just looking through the viewfinder and I'm like, come on, come on, somebody go off, somebody go off. You know, just I just want, you know, like the nose or the splitter, like digging into the dirt or something. And then literally, without fail, like my timing feels terrible. I like look up, I'm like, all right, stretching my neck, like trying to relax. And then I see somebody, you know, dip the tire. And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> Every time. Yeah. <laughs> that, that same year, I spent probably two hours right by where the, the palm trees are facing away. Uh, so before the cars go over the bridge, those forget what turn it is, but the, a lot of those guys are, you know, as they're coming through there, they're sliding and tracking out towards that, that curb and they almost use it like a berm. So the, the tire touches the berm and it bounces them back in the track. 
that sometimes they're tracking way too wide. You can literally like see these guys sliding. Uh, sometimes they slide wide enough that they'll they'll get a tire or two over, but they just send sparks up everywhere. And uh, it's spent quite a while just watching that turn over and over and over <laughs> again. I missed all sorts of stuff to the left. And uh, as soon as I took my finger off, off the, the shutter, like, all right, I'm giving up. There's somebody that came over and, and just slid across the entire curb and sent up <laughs> hundreds of sparks everywhere. I was like, you fuck. <laughs> Without fail. So, That's what happens every, every time. It's, it's every time. Whenever you want something to happen. So, But I think it's... I, I think also it's that much more satisfying when you do get that shot and you're like, all right, that's exactly what I saw and exactly what I wanted. That's kind of what happened that year. There was a, a Porsche that put one of their, uh, one of the splitters or like must have hit, I guess, the, the panel underneath or something like that and just sent up these huge, big, glowing, uh, you know, these, these just huge sparks. So, yeah, I think uh, the, the law of averages, though, you know, eventually it comes back around to you and you get some of those right shot or right place, right time shots, you know, and you think like, Oh, okay. That was pretty lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so an- another thing that happened at Sebring was, uh, at the end of the FIA race, I was down on the back straight after the hairpin and I got totally locked in after seeing the shots that you got the year prior with the sparks and everything. And like, I had that in my head and I was like, I have to get some spark shots. And I was down there and the cars, it was the prototypes were bottoming out and throwing some sparks. And I absolutely got the blinders down on after the sun went down. And next thing I know, it's like the end of the race, my cards full, the fireworks are going off. And I'm like, well, I didn't get any other night shots because I was totally focused on getting these spark shots and like just totally lost my train of thought towards, anything else (laughs) i mean sometimes you just gotta sometimes you just gotta let them go and you know what it is yeah uh, i i i find that most recently uh after now that i i shoot a lot more for work i i sometimes forget to like have fun and remove myself from having to to hunt for a shot i think that was so year prior when I had showed you those, those photos, that was, uh, I was wandering around with Mark Urbano behind the fence and, you know, I had media credentials and it was just like, I was, ha- I was having a genuinely good time because we were just kind of going out and fucking around and or working. But, you know, I think that's something that really reflects in your work when you're actually like, you're having a good time and like, you see those moments more and more and more instead of like trying to get locked on and get one single shot. Yeah. And I think sometimes you get in your head that you need that shot, but you don't, you know, you just need to grab what's in front of you and do what you can with that kind of stuff instead of trying to make something happen, you know? What, uh, so in your work, what non-automotive, uh, or sorry, not motorsport kind of scenes have you grabbed either at an event or not at an event that uh, kind of like stick out in your mind? Like, what are, have you gotten any of those kind of in-between moments? Like fan like shots and stuff? and stuff like that? Yeah, like anything like that. Like the kind of shots that you get when you shut your mind off and you just I get the scene instead of a typical motorsport yeah. shot. I've tried to get some of those. I think it's harder with motorsport, but I think I've tried to do like silhouette shots, like with fans watching. So like try to, um, you know, 
skylight them basically with you know the sky and on top of like one of the viewing mounds like for example at Sebring and then the car is like blurring past so I've tried to do stuff like that to varying degrees of success um, because you really need a good background and a good frame for that but my most successful uh, shot like that I think is actually an air show shot at the Tampa Bay Air Fest where there were these guys, um, I don't know if they were the pilots of the F-15 or not, but there was just a group of people uh, standing on top of an F-15 while they were, were watching the Blue Angels, and I got one of the Blue Angels going like right amongst them and also the vertical stabilizers of the F-15. And it doesn't sound that cool when I explain it, but like looking back on the shot, it's like one of the best shots I've gotten because like the subject isn't the Blue Angel plane. It's like just you know they're watching it from the back of this F eighteen. It's just a really cool scene, and like it ended up being like framed really nice and everything. So, and I've made it a point to do that at air shows because, uh, you know it's not motorsports related, but like it's still it's similar to motorsports because you're looking at a similar subject. I think where you have to take a step back, and I'll like reserve. I'll go like two days, for example, and one of the days I'll do all the tight shots. And then the second day it's like, okay, I'm going to throw the 7200 on and shoot everything with the 7200 and not put the big lens on to try to force myself to take those kind of shots. And I've tried doing that for motorsport. Um, not as successfully because I think it's a lot harder. Um, but yeah, I've, I've gotten a few of the fan shots, um, but that's about it. And I've tried to focus more on hands and like detail stuff like that after talking with you for a little bit about that um so again varying degrees of success but what's your most successful shot you think like that of like motorsports uh that that's a tough one i don't know um honestly i've, I've shot so much over the last couple of years i kind of forget what i have and haven't shot, but, uh, one of them, one that I got this year that I was kind of excited about was, um, that's, that's Sebring again. Uh, there's a bunch of people lined up on the fence by the front straightaway mm. and, uh, on the, on the banner across the way was a Michelin, you know, the Michelin man, but they had this little, like the little lightning bolt that I thought was kind of cool because of all the, the um, what do they call them now? The, the hybrid prototypes, that, oh, uh, the hypercars. Yeah, the WC was hypercars, and then what? What are the the new ones in IMSA? The GT... GTP. A GTP, yeah, I should know that because, and GTP was huge back in the nineties. Yeah, uh, but anyway, uh, so there's there's a a dude standing there with like some kind of safari hat or whatever, and uh, he's like, you know, taking these panning shots. So I I used him to kind of frame up the shot and let the car one of the one of the hybrid cars kind of blur past that little lightning bolt and michelin man i thought that was kind of a cool uh little like reference to the the resurgence of the electric cars or these hybrid cars and i'm you know, not really using a single car as the typical car shot just kind of framing it with the people yeah i actually tried a similar shot with that michelin man like you're talking about the graffiti sort of on the barrier yeah yeah yeah, yeah there's like the palm trees in the back and then that it was down uh, trackside, like yep. down low and that right by the bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, I did almost the exact same thing, but I didn't have anybody in the shot. It was just the car. And I remember thinking, <laughs> I was just kind of like, they were like, meh. You know, <laughs> I think adding a person <laughs> would make it a lot better. So I'm kind of I think curious. outside of motorsports, though, like now that you mentioned my talking about hands, uh, in in restoration, like the restoration side of things, and like when these guys are working on cars, I find myself shooting hands a lot. So uh, our, our Pikes Peak GT4, we we basically painted on, I say we loosely, but we as a company and our restoration team painted the, the graphics onto that car. A lot of it was like you know, tape lines and all that sort of stuff. But I, I shot a lot of like um, the hands on the spray guns and like the mist coming from like the paint, atomized, the atomized paint vapor out of the, the paint guns and uh, a lot of hands and like fingertips taping on the, uh, the actual graphic lines. Like I thought that was kind of cool way to tell, tell a story without being super literal, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard actually. I find to shoot people in general and even the hands, like I don't see like when I'm shooting cars, maybe it's cause I've done it so much is like you can sort of, you have an expectation of what it's going to look like and you can sort of expect it. And you know, you're like, okay, if I go here, I can get this shot. When I'm taking pictures of like, like hands, for example, I'm just like, I have no idea how it's going to come out because they're moving. <laughs> the focus is changing. You know, it might be focused on like the knuckle or, or like right at the tip of the finger. And depending on what you're doing and your settings and everything, that's obviously going to change. But, um, it's never in the moment. I'm like, ah, we'll see if any of those are good. And then later I'm like, okay, I really like this one and how it feels. And I find it almost feels arbitrary, which ones look cool or not. Like, I can't even say why, you know, it just, it has a feel to it. Like, especially when like, um, I find that like those kind of shots respond well to like the texture slider because it makes it feel like more gritty and like some work's being done. Um, but yeah, it's like I can't predict those. Like I just shoot them and and kind of hope for the best. And I look later and like I I just can't make a judgment in the moment with those kind of shots. Kind of feel like a weirdo now thinking about it. Like of how many hands shots I've done. <laughs> I mean, like yes. Yeah, so, so like I I kind of uh, I think back to one of my best friends. He's a he's an architectural historian, but he's also a, an absolutely fucking incredible. Uh, artist he paints and draws and all that stuff and a lot of his stuff is uh you know focused on michelangelo and all that sort of stuff and um it's like very classically trained sort of stuff and uh you know one of the models that people always use for for drawing is like hands they're such a complex subject and like they can tell so much of the story i guess if you like think about them as a metaphor or whatever it's you know they're they're kind of an essential thing that lets us do whatever it is that we're we're doing in the world like you know without our without our hands like you know we'd be we wouldn't be able to 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 do 90 percent of this stuff so like you know implementing those into when guys are working on metal or when they're telling a story lots of times hands can be so expressive and uh yeah, I mean, I just find myself a lot of times shooting what people are doing with their hands. I guess maybe I pay attention a lot to what people are doing with their hands, but I think about it like a, when we we do these rallies every year with uh, the 906s, 910s, the fiberglass cars. We do that out in Colorado, and uh, 
probably a year, a couple of years back, uh, when the first year that we had done it, one of our clients wanted to basically came up the, with the idea. He wanted to drive the car from his place in, uh, in Vail to over independence pass and all that. And, uh, and in, in Aspen. So, uh, Along the way, we had, you know, we had random pit stops and stuff, and we were cruising through Independence Pass, and he was telling us the story about his, I think it was his father or his grandfather, I can't 100% remember, but uh, he was telling us this story about, it was the 10th Mountain Division, like these guys were, were in the Army, and they put them up in these, in the Rocky, they were stationed in the Rockies, and, you know, they were basically mountain men, and uh, he was telling us the story, and I I probably have 20 photos of his hand, just like pointing out the different aspects of the mountain. And like, you know, when you kind of scroll through them, you can almost put together the story just by looking at his hands and how he's saying things and pointing off into the distance. And so, yeah, I think it's, I don't know. it's a nonverbal uh, way of communication too, that most people understand, you know, cause like you can't hear people talking in a photo, but you can make gestures and you can almost tell someone's mood based off of their, you know, the shape of their hand and what they're doing. And also, like you said, it's so complex. And on top of the fact that we probably live or uh, not live, but, uh, you know, all photography to some extent is like um, voyeuristic. And so, like, when you see someone interacting with someone with something like that, you know, you imagine yourself like interacting with that or you get, you know, even just seeing someone interact with it. It's like seeing a picture of someone petting a lion, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, like it has an effect on you because you're like, Ooh, man, you know, imagine that petting a lion, <laughs> you get to see it, you know, you can kind of imagine what it feels like. And so I think there's an element of that in there. Um, but yeah, I think it just, it just helps tell the story. And I've, I never used to take pictures of that kind of thing. I always just focused on cars and stuff like that, but it's really improved my photography after talking to you about that and like trying to focus more on that kind of thing and telling the story of people because really the people is what matters in everything. Like if you're taking a picture of a car or whatever, it's the people behind it that built it, the team that run it, the driver, everything. It's all attached to people. And the more you can tie that in, the more interesting and compelling the story is. It's not just a machine, you know? Like, that's an important part to talk about. But even the machine itself, people designed it, built it, you know? People are always going to have to be involved in that respect. Sure. I mean, that's, like, that's a story that our company really kind of, like, revolves around, too, is, you know, think about in the 50s, dudes were, were engineering these cars with math and just doing things on pen and paper. And they dedicated months and years and, decades of their lives to to create these things and then there were people who like you said like drivers the the people who imported them like there's it's everything everything about these machines are a testament to kind of superhuman feats and a dedication that that people put forth and you know without without people that they're just an inanimate object you know it's a it's a hunk of rubber and plastic and and whatever metals but you know, the people, the people would give them significance. So, uh, for us, it's, you know, it's really a way to pay homage and uphold their legacies for, to be able to, you know, put a collector or somebody in these cars and they get to put their hands on the same steering wheel that a, a race driver did, or 
have you know such a significant piece of history and engineering and you know something that'll like without without the cars you don't ask the question of about the people you don't you don't you know like the more interesting the car the more you want to learn the backstory and then it just gets that much better when you start learning about the people and yeah so yeah. I agree with everything you just said. I think I started rambling a little bit. <laughs> no, that's fine. It made sense to me. It's just like it adds another layer of interest, and it's those kind of details that elevate something from like normal to really meaningful, and that's where like you develop the meaning. And it's like just like the photos we talked about um, earlier, you know, sort of the ones that are our favorites or tell the the most uh, tell the best story. It has some kind of human element to it. You know, like even the Honda Civic I was talking about, um, you know, with the tape on it and it's battle scarred and all this, it tells a story of like a fight and all this kind of thing. It's not just like the inanimate object and its existence in space that's interesting. You know, it's what's going on and, and what's happened to it in regards to other people, you know, but, but anyway, context, yeah. context in photography is such an important thing. And I think that's like all those kind of establishing shots and, all the, yeah. the shots that show the scene and all that stuff, like it, it adds to the bigger picture of telling a story, uh, especially if you shoot in a, like I tend to, to shoot everything uh, in like series. So like I don't I don't think of a single photo. I'm, I'm thinking of the entire narrative all the way through. So I tend to shoot in big series of 10 or 20 or 40 photos that try to tell as much of the story end to end as I can. Yeah, and half the time it's not even a conscious decision. Hmm. It's tough to do that too, though, because then you almost get in a position where, like, trying to tell that story. Then you know, when you're limited to like ten photos on Instagram, is actually quite difficult. You know, and you have to tell it in like sort of chronological order, and like you then you know that first image has to draw you in and stuff, and it becomes very. It's like sort of when you have a writing project, and it's like you think because it's only. 500 words you're like oh this will be easy and you're like man how do i pack all this down to 500 words and make it make sense (laughs) yes seriously (laughs) it's the same thing you're like how do i tell this story in 10 photos you can't you know i mean it's a it's definitely a difficult thing to do but i mean i i I don't know i just some days i sit back and i like i think about how amazing it is that you can even do that without putting any words on paper like yeah that's photography is a is such an incredible means of communication that you don't even have to say anything yeah and i don't even know what you would it'd be hard to explain it most of the time the actual story that's in the photos you almost just kind of understand it in and of itself you know i've definitely seen photos like that they're they're kind of abstract but they tell a story and then i think to myself i'm not entirely sure what story it is (laughs) But, like, I can just look at the photos and know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the abs- I, I maybe shoot too abstract sometimes, but I, I, I think, like, kind of having both is, is such a... Just being able to do both is such an amazing thing. So, um, we're getting on in terms of time right now. Uh, I'm going to ask one more question, and then uh, we'll call it. Sound good? good cool so uh what would you say your bucket list event or shoot would be uh 
Pixel Peak was uh, was a bucket list before I actually did it. And if I had to if I had to only choose one thing to continue to shoot in my life, and cancel everything else, it would be Pikes Peak. But okay. I think in terms of motorsport stuff, I think any of the WRC rallies hmm. are on my bucket list and Burger Ring 24 is absolutely on my bucket list. Those those all seem like incredibly difficult <laughs> uh, events uh, yeah. to cover. <laughs> forgot to add king of the hammers and baja <laughs> okay yeah that also checks out also very difficult it seems like the scene and like the setting is really important for you there oh yeah i mean like all those things have i don't know if it's seen yeah i mean scene and setting help to tell the the bigger picture and bigger story because they're like, those things are just such feats of human and endurance and passion and like you know you're not going to succeed in those things unless you're disciplined and love it and just even being a spectator to watch a race for 24 hours or sit there in the desert or be on the side of a road in the trees where fucking Hyundai is flying through the air at you at a hundred miles an hour. Like all those things, like there's so much grit and such a story behind each and every one of them. Hmm. I think like, that's the next challenge to try to capture and figure out how to tell those stories. Makes sense. Um, yeah, for me, I think it would be, it would have to be Goodwood if it was to be like one thing, the revival specifically, um, just because I was lucky enough to go there for one year and it was just literally the best, best thing I've ever done. And it was just, the setting was amazing um, it's just extremely photogenic. The cars are amazing. And most importantly, like those guys just wheel those historic cars and like they're drifting all over the place, sliding, dropping a wheel in the dirt. There's just, it's so cool because it gives you a feel for what racing used to be like, um, where you could see the car moving around and I'm definitely into the cars more than I am anything else. It's just like the history of like an AC Cobra, for example, and just seeing it slide around. I, I, that just, I think is awesome. But outside of that, I think it would be one, it would have to be Le Mans, actually. I don't know why I have a fascination for Le Mans. And I don't know if it's because I've seen so many historic photos and I just am fascinated by the history and the prestige of the event. But also, that would be a really gnarly event to cover because the track is so big. Um, but yeah, I've always been fascinated with Le Mans, and it's just like every year that's like the event for me. I'll watch as much as I can, and I don't even care. Even the year that it was basically just the Toyotas, um, still watched it. It's awesome. I just love the idea of endurance racing and just cars just going around and round and round. And even the 12 hour and 24 hour, uh, Daytona and Sebring when I'm there, I always have this feeling at the start of the race where I'm like, all right, and that's it. And now for the next, you know, 12 or 24 hours, it's going to be this noise cars on track. And just like, it's just an awesome idea to go racing for that long. And I love the fact that, you know, some people will be like, Oh, why would you, why would you watch that for 24 hours? <laughs> and it's like, that's not the point. You know, it's like, it's cause it's hard, you know, it's a, it's impressive these cars can even last that long. The drivers can stay alert, you know, and race each other at 200 miles an hour at 
4 a.m., <laughs> you know, yeah. and especially at places like the Nürburgring or Le Mans. And, yeah, for me, Le Mans is just king with the amount of history. And, like, I would, it would just feel so special to even be there. So that, that would be it for me, I think. So with all the, like, the endurance races, it, I've come to really appreciate crews behind it so think about the drivers are pushing themselves but at least they get out and they have a break you have the crews that have to repair the cars and kind of be on standby the whole time then you have the people who are are in charge of all the strategy and they're constantly taking in so much data and watching you know all this information and trying to you know hide the team over the long long term like think about how draining that is emotionally and physically to be like, you know, you're, you're kind of on pins and needles at every single moment. You're always ready. You're always waiting. You're always taking in and watching and observing. Like, that's almost as amazing as the drivers themselves. Oh, yeah, that, absolutely. Right. That That's what makes it so amazing. It's just such an epic, like, in the true sense of the word, event. And, you know, to just go around for 24 hours. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know. There's just something really special about it. My My favorite place to be. Uh, at those endurance races is like somewhere up in the stands like late at night when you're all alone and like there's people sleeping and it's like you just have that the sounds of the race going on it's like it almost becomes kind of routine but there's I don't know there's just something beautiful about that that I just get really excited about and I just I'm the kind of person that loves being alone too and it's just my favorite thing is just to be out on the track alone you know, at some random time of the night and just watching the cars go around. There's, I, I don't know. I can't really explain that, but I just really love that. And just trying to capture that essence with the photos is, it makes it really enjoyable and rewarding. Yeah. I think a lot of photographers or creative types kind of share that sentiment. So I think most of us probably lean towards being introverts. So, you know, to really be able to focus in and like kind of get like, without being up close or even sometimes up close, like being able to get that intimate with your subject and just zone in and kind of tune out the rest of the world is like refreshing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. It's like the rest of the world doesn't matter. You know, it's 2 AM or whatever it is. And you know, the rest of the area around you sleeping and it's like, this thing is still going on, you know, it's just really cool. I get that. So not to drag this damn conversation out, but, uh, you know, Pikes Peak, I get that, I get that all the time because you're, you know, you're literally, while the rest of the world is sleeping, you're up on the side of a mountain, rest of, rest of at least Colorado is sleeping, but, uh, you know, you're on the side of the mountain, there's nothing, and it's the, the complete opposite of, like, Daytona or Sebring, where there's just that constant noise, and it's hours on end of, you know, like, you, you almost become impervious to it, it just becomes background noise. Yeah. This you're using every bit of your sense and like up high on the mountain, you can hear the cars from the starting line and as they work up through each turn. So, you know, that, that for me is where I, I kind of like, I can kind of take a breath of fresh air and like, you know, like what you were saying is like, uh, kind of be alone and enjoy that moment. It's like, yeah, you're just like fully immersed and saturated in it. And like, yeah. it just feels like home becomes kind of a zen moment yeah exactly but do you ever get that with uh with panning do you ever get like kind of like almost get into like the zen mode of like pacing your breathing and trying to get 
get locked on and sometimes sometimes i do um more often than not though i'm like kind of rushing through it but you know you're just trying to get a shot because you know that you're gonna have to you know take a bunch of cracks at it to get a good one um but eventually eventually i do and i get (laughs) i get like real snug in how i'm holding the camera just try to stay as still as possible and you know you're just kind of feeling it I don't even really end up looking through the viewfinder. Like I'm just kind of glancing at it. I'm more just focused on just trying to match the speed of the car. And uh, yeah, then I then I kind of do, but not as much actually. Is that is that what happens to you? Oh yeah, I like have to. I I do like pretend fucking sniper training. So I like I'm like <laughs> you know regulating my breath and doing like you know five seconds in, five seconds out, and I got like shoulders my my elbows kind of locked down like yep yep you know pinned pinned to my lats and i'm as rigid as possible but like loose in the hips and i just kind of like i try to find a point usually like the number and just keep my i so i always shoot in full manual and and spot metering so i'm always always doing single point focus so i'll usually try to get that square to lock on as close as i possibly can to to not move off the number at all so that's what i'm always looking at and like it's one after the other but you're listening for the next car and you're almost trying to figure out like you can tell the corvettes you can tell the mercedes you can tell some of the uh some of the porsches like the rsrs so it's always like you know you're kind of like you're locked in and you you have your little zen moment with the first car and then like instantly after that you snap to the next one and and have to get in that same mode yeah i i definitely get into like the breathing where I'm like, like exhaling, I'm like, that kind of thing. But, uh, it's more intense for me than it is like Zen. And, uh, but I do the same thing. I'm like totally locked in, but I try to like follow the sound more than, uh, try to really lock in with, uh, through the viewfinder. And I don't know why, actually, I just kind of, I found, I go back and forth. I'll like try one strategy of like trying to be locked in and then I'll go back to sort of just kind of loosening up and just trying to follow the sound. And I, I guess it depends on more what I perceive as working better in the moment. But I do reach a point also, if I get start to get really tired, I'm just like done. I cannot pan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like not going to happen. Um, which is when, usually when I go to like really crazy shutter speeds. Because sometimes there, you know, you'll you can only track the car for a split second. And then you can do something crazy with it and try to make like streaks and stuff. It's a little bit easier. Um, you know, you can't really try to get a really good uh, second long pan. I don't think you kind of you're doing something crazy and you're just kind of seeing what comes out the other side of that. I find I default to long pans at the very end because I'm like <clears throat> I'm not really looking for you know, the context shots and all the interesting stuff. I'm just kind of like, all right, fuck it. Let's just smear all the colors and the lights and everything. And, you know, it's, it's like, I feel like it's lazy. So can, I can kind of, that's like when I, you know, not to give up, but that's like my last, my last line of, uh, usually I give up immediately after getting a couple pans that I like. And I'm like, all right, fuck it. Going back yeah. to the truck. Yeah. Fair enough. I, I, I've tried to do it more actually. Um, and do crazy pans like that just to see what happens. Um, but yeah, I definitely, when I'm, when I'm like spent, 
I don't even know what I, sometimes I'll just sit there and watch and just try to think of something. Um, and then I probably default to pans, but I don't know. I just feel I reach a point like near the end of the race where I'm just like, I'm done. I literally cannot think of another thing to do. And I've been around the entire track like twice, <laughs> um, which is almost a fun feeling in itself, but yeah. I don't know if I've ever really stayed for the very end of half of these races. Now that I think about it. Oh, really? I yeah, like there's, I mean, I have for, if there's like a, the champagne ceremony at yeah, the end, yeah, yeah. like usually I'll stay for those, but like sometimes like, sometimes I'll just get out of there. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the 24 hour races, it's like there's, there's 30 minutes left and I, I scoot. Yeah. In the past I've done that. I've always had a, um, a tradition for Sebring because I'm it's relatively close to my parents. So I used to uh watch the race up until a point and then go home and uh to their house and watch uh you know that last half hour on TV or something, which I always thought was fun. But I've tried to stay more and get everything that I want to get out of it now. But yeah, it's tough, man. I don't know. You get down to the end of spe- Sebring's tough too because it gets dark. You know, yeah. and you're just like, okay, it's dark now. Now it's like, I, I personally, I find shooting at night really uh, difficult in trying to, because you're really limited to pans unless you, yeah. unless you really can get creative with it. But um, that's like the toughest time you're freaking spent. And it's, ah, that, that's like the hardest time for me is it's the end of the 12 hour. Cause I just literally cannot figure out where I want to go, what I want to get. And so I usually just end up getting a couple pans into the breaking zone at the hairpin, get some, you know, some of the basic stuff and then try some other stuff. But man, you don't even have that much time either. <laughs> oh. It's tough. Oh, I find, uh, I find at night, like, so the creative shots that I'll get at night are usually like, um, the way that headlights are framing another car. So like creating yeah. lines on the other car's bodywork and like silhouettes and that. But yeah, shooting at nighttime is really tough, and especially like Daytona and Daytona. There's more lights and stuff to play yeah. with. Sebring gets Sebring really dark. dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, like, you'll go to a spot and be like, "I think this could be cool," and you look at it and you go, "Nope, it's just headlights. That's all I see." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, so. all right, man. I think I'm gonna call it there. Uh, we're up at a pretty good time now. Uh, we actually did not get through as many of the topics as I thought we would, but I thought we you know, had some still good conversations. So, um, hopefully we'll have you back on and we'll go over some of that other stuff and maybe talk about some more specific things, but, uh, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, and is there anything else you want to mention before we hop off? No. Thank you for having me on is, is fun chatting and hopefully I didn't ramble too much. (laughs) That's what it's about, man. That's what podcasting is all about going off on tangents. Hopefully the listeners kind of get some entertainment or learn a little something. Yeah, exactly. So, all right, man, thank you. And um, for everybody listening, uh, thanks for listening. And uh, if you want to check out the website, it is motorsportsinfocus.com. And then on social media, Motorsports in Focus on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time.